Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up, and I am officially packing my bags and getting ready for this weekend's Bossed Up Boot Camp in Chicago, Illinois, the Windy City. I am so looking forward to a really intimate weekend with women across different age groups, across different industries, across different inflection points in life who are all navigating big life transitions in one way or another. I'm so thrilled to be coming together in community with you to provide our research-driven, award-winning, action-oriented curriculum that brings together work, love, and wellness all in one weekend. We have such an incredible group of trainers coming out to join me this weekend in Chicago. We've got Tiffany, who's breaking down how to dress like a boss. I'm tackling how to clarify your career vision, how to negotiate for all your worth, how to be a more assertive communicator. You'll hear from local financial advisor, Allison Fiery, on how to balance that boss budget and boss up your bank account. You'll hear from Michelle Morkert, one of our new trainer team members, all about mindfulness and happiness and how to tap into your deepest held desires and so much more, right? You're going to leave with an action plan. You're going to leave with clarity. You're going to leave with community. And if nothing else, you're going to leave with some really fun goodies from yours truly and a brand new beautiful headshot and a weekend full of cherished memories. So I can't wait to see all y'all who are joining me there. If you want to get in on this, there's still some room for this weekend's Bossed Up Bootcamp in Chicago. It's going to be hosted by our friends at Ampersand, a female-owned and operated co-working space in the Logan Square neighborhood of Northern Chicago. And you can register right now with a one-time payment or an easy three-month installment plan And you can even apply for need-based scholarships if that's what will make it possible for you to join us this weekend, all at bossedup.org slash bootcamp. I hope to see you there. And I'm already super excited for the dozen plus of you who have registered to join me in September in D.C. D.C.'s bootcamp will be hosted once again by our friends at Social Tables in downtown Washington, D.C. And then our final bootcamp for the year is coming together in Los Angeles. We're still locking in our location for that one in November. And stay tuned for more info on Bossed Up Bootcamps I'm hosting in 2020. All right, for today's podcast episode, you're actually getting kind of a sneak peek, an insider's look, or rather listen, to a panel conversation I recently had and was invited to speak on by the Commonwealth Club of California. I was just in San Francisco a couple weeks ago speaking with two very incredible, brilliant men, Michael C. Bush, who is the CEO of Great Place to Work and the author of 
a great place to work for all. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, a professor, a media commentator, and an all-around brilliant guy. And I was also joined by R. Paul Herman, who's the CEO and founder of Hip Investor, which offers impact ratings, portfolios, and a higher impact portfolio manager. He's an author himself and had lots to contribute to this conversation all about why great workplaces are better for employees, investors, and society overall. I have to admit, I was feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome when I was invited to speak on this panel. And I think you'll hear the diversity of opinions that the three of us brought to this discussion turns out was part of what made it so interesting and so valuable. I was the only relatively young person on the panel. I know I'm 31 now, so I'm not like a brand spanking new right out of college young person. But yeah, I was the only millennial on the panel. And I found myself again and again coming back to gender inclusion, coming back to gender equality, coming back to workers' rights, coming back to worker pay as part of what makes workplaces great is the experience of everyday workers. And I don't know, I think you'll hear some really divergent opinions coming from Paul, Michael, and myself that all contribute to why great places to work are truly better for everybody, but are unfortunately somewhat rare in our world and why we need to do more to make sure that more folks like you all listening, like all the women I talk to all the time who come to Boss Up because they are looking for a great place to work, right, can have access to them. So what I'm about to play you is an abbreviated version of this very fun dialogue we had live in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. And a special shout out to the two Bossed Up community members, my dear friend, Sarah Catherine, and good pal of mine, Anna, who joined me live when this discussion took place. If you want to hear the entire panel discussion, you can access the original recording in its entirety at commonwealthclub.org via the link in my show notes. And if after hearing this, you're thinking, hey, Emily, I want to invite you to be on a panel at my organization, or I would like to invite you to speak at my women's initiative, please get in touch because this is something I do all the time. Public speaking is my passion. Uh, Weighing in on conversations like this is something I am frequently flying across the country to do. And you can learn more at emilyaries.com or just shoot me a message and let's see what we can make happen because I am just waiting for your invitation. Now, a little background on this. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum. Every year, they present more than 450 forums on topics ranging across politics, culture, society, and the economy. It's got offices in San Francisco and Silicon Valley with regular events hosted in both areas. If you're tuning in from the West Coast, from the Bay Area, make sure you get yourself to a live Commonwealth Club event because they truly are fantastic. And the club has a weekly radio broadcast, which you might hear across more than 230 public and commercial radio stations, in addition to now the Bossed Up podcast. Enjoy today's conversation. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear if you've got opinions on this matter, contributions that we didn't cover, or if you've got more dialogue that you want to bring to this debate. Don't hesitate to let me know. All right, let's jump into the panel itself. All right. Welcome, everybody. Delightful to be together. And today we're going to talk about great workplaces, what makes a great workplace, how you can make a great workplace, and what we can all do individually and together. 
So let's kick this off early. Emily, you work with companies, you immerse yourself in workplaces. Why are great workplaces important? I think great places to work are important for two reasons. One, there's the business case, which we're going to talk a lot more about today. It's better for the bottom line of businesses to have happy, healthy, and engaged employees. But two, which I don't want to forget about as we have this very business-focused conversation, is the moral argument. That's the world I want to live in. I want to live in the world where people have happy, healthy career paths, not just because that's what I want for myself, but that's what I want for my neighbors. That's what I want for my community. And knowing that happy, healthy workers are actually more productive members of their workforce, but also members of society puts this in a global perspective. If we want to tackle the biggest, most challenging, most scary existential issues that face our globe today, we need to tackle this issue from within companies, within governments, and within our world. Fantastic. Michael, how about you? Uh, why are great workplaces important from all your experience across uh, working with, engaging with, and certifying hundreds of small, medium, and large companies? Mm. We survey 10 million employees a year in 98 countries around the world, 10,000 companies a year. So we know a lot about working people, and the news isn't good. Uh, we know more about places that are not great places to work than places that are great places to work. So working conditions aren't good, even as the global economy boobs. It's important because, as Emily said, businesses that are great places to work make a lot more money. And money is important. It's an important part of business. I agree with Emily on, as we say, it's better for business, better for people, and better for the world. Mm. I believe in the moral argument, too. But I find most CEOs don't. They don't pull out a tissue when you say that. When yeah. you say more profit, they pull out a tissue because <laughs> that, that moves them emotionally. The moral imperative doesn't seem to do that. doesn't seem to do that for shareholders either. So we say better for business, better for people, better for the world. Pick any one of those and you should do the same series of things, right. which is treat people in a certain way that's going to make them bring 100% of themselves to work and be trusted at work and trust others at work. And that's going to be the best thing you could do for your customers. Super. Today, I'll play the role of uh, player coach as well, not only moderating this conversation, but contributing what uh, we're learning from the investment community and from portfolios. And of course, Bill Russell was a successful player coach taking basketball teams to the championship. So building on what Emily and uh, Michael have said, obviously, there's a financial case for it. Professor Alex Edmonds has studied the great places to work based on Michael's organization's uh, ratings and rankings of bottom-up surveys from employees. And he's found that in financial terms, on a risk-adjusted basis, there's higher returns and lower risk. And this is the case not only in the U.S. over long periods of time, it's actually the case in dozens of countries around the world. So great workplaces can produce a higher financial benefit. In some cases, depending on the time period, as Russell Investments has analyzed, it could be up to double the performance of the S&P 500. So that's a compelling financial reason to pull out your tissue box as a CEO. <laughs> Interestingly, in that analysis, as Alex Edmonds has done that first at my alma mater, Wharton School of Business, and now in London, is there are two countries where that doesn't hold. And those countries are Germany and Denmark. And in Germany and Denmark, workers gain more of the value. And so the, the excess value of worker productivity and innovation flows to employees, not just to investors. And you have employees who are on the board at uh, German auto companies and in Danish companies like Novo Nordisk. But as we've all attached, like people work at businesses, people 
are an asset, according to CEOs. Mm. And CEOs will frequently say people are our most important asset. So, Michael, is that true? Are people really an asset? And if so, how come people aren't on the financial statements in that way? Well, uh, that's what I was about to say. You know, you can't find them. So it's one of those things that people say, Mm. uh, but they don't act like it's true. Uh-huh. If you look at their assets that are on the balance sheet, they treat them in a certain way. Right. They, but people they, are on the income statement. They're on the income uh, statement. People are on the cost. income statement a, right. as a cost, but they're not an asset on the on the balance sheet. Right. And so how would we do that? Like, doesn't that mean that connotes that we'd have slavery, like companies would own people or are they more like leases? That's actually happened before. Oh, no, of course. Yeah. So what's the oh, practical oh, implementation you, of that? Well, the, the practical implementation is there's goodwill. That's on the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. There's brand value. That's on the balance sheet, mm-hmm. usually within the goodwill calculation. How people are treated at work, the employee experience can also be valued yeah. on the balance sheet in a similar way. It's not very difficult to do. It means that there needs to be a metric for the employee experience, which I believe exists today. We happen to have one. Others can have one as well. People know the relationship between the employee experience and the customer experience. Mm-hmm. People now know the, the relationship between the employee experience and earnings the employee experience and market share, the employee experience on EBITDA, the employee experience on revenue, these things are all known. So it's pretty easy to place it there. And then just like everything else that's on the balance sheet, the governance, uh, the board of directors should do what does not happen today, which is spend time talking about whether or not the executives are creating a great experience for all people who are working in the organization. Mm -hmm. You put those two components together, it's on the balance sheet, and now people are an asset. Right. The other metric that has to be talked about is employee retention, because in a competitive marketplace like the one we're in right now, if employees aren't getting what they need out of their current organization, they're going to go elsewhere and find it. And my whole organization and book is about how to advocate for getting what you want out of your career when your organization isn't being proactive about giving that to you. So it's not rocket science to measure the churn rate or the retention rate or how often you're having to expend precious resources of onboarding and training people. There's an architecture firm in Denver where I call home that I've started talking with, haven't officially started working with, who is hiring like gangbusters and everyone in the industry is saying, wow, you guys are really growing at such a fast rate. The reality is they're not growing, they're replacing They're replacing the talent that they're losing each and every single day. And if you want to talk bottom line metrics, that is an expensive number that everyone should care about. And it belies a deeper truth about employee satisfaction, about feeling invested in, and about seeing a future for yourself at your organization. Great. Yeah. So it sounds like you're both talking about metrics to do that. And in the 1990s, the concept of the balance scorecard became more and more popular. So balance scorecard is pick up to five metrics for your company. Obviously, you probably want customers. I think everyone on stage is saying you need an employee metric Mm -hmm. that we look at. Obviously, financials is one. And then you get to pick two more. Uh, and today, they might be things like climate action or you know emissions mm. and maybe something that gives you a strategic <laughs> advantage. But customers and employees being part of this metric system and board review, the people as an asset concept actually, as Michael said, has academic papers written on this and actually applied to mainly companies in India. Dr. Baruch Lev at NYU 
did his PhD thesis back in the 60s and three other t- competing teams in the 70s on putting people on the balance sheet as an asset, whether that's historical cost or replacement cost. The LEV model is essentially take the future cash flows related to employees and discount them back. And when you apply this to a company like Infosys, which is the IBM of the world that's based in India, and you take, which they did report in their 10K and financial statements, the value of human capital next to their accounting capital, book capital, book value capital. When you add that human capital value and that book value, it actually almost paralleled the market value for Infosys Mm. um, from when they did it in the late 90s for the following 15 years. Engagement surveys come in at, on average, in corporate environments. Not sure how this differs for small and midsize. Mm. Think about this for yourself. What percent of the people you work with are engaged at work? What do you think that number is on a scale of 100%? And so the answer usually is 20%. Everyone's sitting with their colleagues is very quiet just now. Right? <laughs> so that's one way to look at it is, okay, well, is only one out of five people I work with engaged at work? And is that person me? But another way to think about it is the way I like to think about it is everybody's engaged at work in some way. So the way I think about the 20% is only one day out of five, if you're working five mm. days a week, are you engaged? And so when that CEO with the tissue box says, very interesting, this may help to unlock it is if we could have people engage just one more day a week, just take it from Monday to Monday and Tuesday or Tuesday to Tuesday and Wednesday, that's doubling productivity, isn't it? Mm. So what about this? What about like the proportion of time that people are engaged, not whether they're committed or not 100% because there's different issues people are engaged about. So what do you think? Yeah, I'm thinking along the lines of the fact that if we take a humanist approach to work, we need to make it okay for people to not be engaged five days a week, Mm. which is a a controversial thing to say up here, perhaps. But we have other things going on in our lives, do we not? Is this not a radical notion that we have families and four-legged fur babies and partnerships and volunteerism and activism we want to be engaged in and maybe a hobby here or there. We all remember hobbies from back in the day before they all became side hustles. But it needs to be okay for us to not be striving for 100% productivity. I certainly think more than 20% engagement is an excellent goal to strive towards. But the way that I think we have to look at work, especially in a highly a growing, I should say, remote workforce. I think it was Amazon that just announced they're hiring 5,000 full-time, full-benefits remote workers in our country right now. We have to look at what does an engaged employee really mean? Uh Because in the past, having your butt in a seat from eight to six nowadays, or back in the day, nine to five, being there was the number one priority. And the worker who gets their work done faster gets more work, right? (laughs) So if we think about engagement, we have to think about it beyond the five-day workweek paradigm. I just did a podcast about a concept known as job sharing, the least popular method to work-life balance, if you want to call it that, in our country right now. We look at adding cafeterias and ping pong tables and vacation plans and unlimited vacation and how that sometimes backfires. Job sharing is the concept of taking one full-time job and giving it to two people, two people who have families to raise on half of the work week, who work a three-day work week. And I think for the future of our economy, especially as mass automation comes hurling our way, we have to expand our concept of engagement 
in not just the workplace, but in the world so that people as human beings have a right to happy, healthy life, not just a robotic. Yeah, this is an emerging concept of not just fitting people to the work, but fitting work the work to, to the, the people. people. Yeah, yeah, so that's Im- important. Okay, so Michael, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think that the engagement, it's the employee experience. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, because engagement is an old model and an old metric. The employee experience is knowing if you respect a person, you know they have a full life. You know they have a pet at home or hobbies or parents or parents to take care of and so on. You know, rent to pay. They can be behind in rent payments. All these things, that's a person Mm -hmm. who handles tremendous responsibility every day. And you treat that person with respect because you know that. So you don't tailor and curate information to present to them. You don't tell them a part of the story because they actually get the whole story. When you treat somebody that way, which is honest and with respect, they know you know they have other things going in their life. So you don't expect them to come to work and compartmentalize and leave their life outside the door. That's disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And so uh, an employee that you want to bring 100% of themselves to work because you're paying them and you're benefited, you have to treat them in a respectful way. The other thing is you have to treat them fairly. This is equally important because if you treat some people like they are fully formed human beings and some like they aren't Mm -hmm. based on job type or who they are or what they are, or what they do in the organization, you have a real big problem now. Mm -hmm. Because there is no respect when there's a lack of fairness. Mm -hmm. And and people feel like there's a disequity in the way people are treated. So those two things go hand in hand. And if you're doing that in a fair way, everybody can be themselves at work. Without it, they're going to start hiding parts of themselves. And now you're getting to productivity and those kinds of problems. So it's a reality of where we are The world's moving in this direction at different paces as you move around the world. Because if you talk to CEOs, which we do, we did a survey, went around and talked to CEOs two years ago. What's the most important thing in terms of you as the CEO look forward in your business? What do you need more of in order to succeed? Innovation. Hmm. Period. Every single time. Innovation. So... We studied that. We leaned in on that and realized the best way to get a phenomenal idea is to get a thousand ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's volume of ideas. The only way to get the highest volume of ideas is everybody in your company who has a smartphone, which is everyone, mm-hmm. including in you can go into the jungle where we survey. Everybody has a smartphone. They all need to be innovating on your behalf. And they're only going to innovate on their behalf if they trust you. They matter. They offer you an idea. If you don't do the idea, you let them know why they didn't do the idea, which companies never do. Suggestions, everyone. You put this suggestion in the box or on the automated tool. You never find out this is why we didn't do it. We looked at it. We didn't evaluate it. So now you ask for another suggestion, just like surveys. They won't do the next one. Uh They will just go, screw this because nobody's listening to me. Nobody cares about what I think. The whole thing weakens and craters. You're better off not doing suggestions and better off not doing surveys. So... So companies Uh, need to innovate, though, and there's actual academic evidence that backs up what you're saying, Michael. So North Carolina State just published a paper in 2018 that looked at the diversity of employees. And what they found was companies that are more diverse, gender, ethnic, age, actually have twice the patents filed per size of the company than the ones that are not. 
there's actual both business case. It speaks to innovation. Mm -hmm. Maybe innovation is the bridge to getting better than a very intriguing answer from CEOs. But I think what we should all understand, even though, you know, robots and artificial intelligence is coming, people are 55% of the cost structure of companies right. on average, you know, 55, more than half of your financials are people. And most likely more than 50% of your financials are come from people. So when mm -hmm. you compare the stock market value to the book value on the balance sheet, which doesn't include people for the S&P 500, that's 84%. So 84% is the amount of stock market value that's not on the balance sheet. And CEOs and most boards don't know what this 84% is. And of course, the main driver is people. People invent products. People serve customers. People work with each other. All right, so let's get tangible here. Think about what's the best workplace practice you've seen or experienced. Well, there's one example that comes to mind that was actually profiled in the Harvard Business Review, and it was a practice that came out of the Boston Consulting Group, pretty massive organization that was struggling with retention, especially among mid to senior level women. And talk about diversity and inclusion. There's been some interesting research that just came out earlier this year in February that shows Yes, diversity and inclusion is a driver of performance, but only in the context in that reinforces gender diversity or diversity writ large across the spectrum as a moral imperative, right? As a normative value of the organization. And so even though there were lots of talk at BCG about inclusion, the reality of the day-to-day -day practices were that women were leaving and men were being promoted. Men were staying and seeing a future. Right. And BCG is formerly called Boston Consulting Groups. So right. This is a professional environment. Yes, exactly. And to solve this problem, they did a ton of exit surveys, as one is uh, familiar with when you leave an organization, and found that the number one reason women were leaving was a low score on the rating of feeling like they had a good mentor or that they were being invested in, like anyone was taking them under their wing. Once again, we come back to that perception of being invested in respected, cared for as a human being, but also as your professional future is rolling out before you. So they instituted a program known as Apprenticeship in Action, not the Women's Diversity and Inclusion Program, but the program across the company that reinforced the importance of apprenticeship as a value among the managers in particular. They gave managers a toolkit with prescriptive advice to follow on how exactly to treat your workers as apprentices because they are masters working on their craft, right? Like this is a process of development of seeing yourself as a long-term investment in the organization. How does one master the craft of consulting? It's a difficult thing to pick up on unless you are invested no, in you have seniors. Like yeah. I did at McKinsey. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a formal mentorship program in the era of Me Too, mind you, where there have been reports that we have to counter that men are reporting feeling unsafe, unsure about mentoring younger women. This is a problem for all of us, especially women who want to be mentored by those in power in a very male and very pale power structure that we're operating in. And so they instituted a, a set of guidelines across the board that increased the promotion rate amongst mid to senior level women by 22% over the course of five years. Not only that, it reduced their churn, their loss of employees by five to 10% over the same period of time. So 
men and women having gone through this apprenticeship and action program, both reported feeling more invested in seeing a future for themselves at the Boston Consulting Group. And it benefited the organization's bottom line, of course, as well. So if we want to really think about diversity and inclusion as a competitive strategy, we have to tackle it across the spectrum of gender. But we have to make it safe for all parties involved to feel like there are not only a normative value placed on that kind of emotional labor, right, investing in our colleagues, but also that there is an expectation that this is a normal thing to do, that we shouldn't have to have, I don't know, our wife present to have a dinner with a female colleague. All right, Michael, what are good case studies or examples of best workplaces or best workplace practices from the millions of people you've surveyed and the thousands of companies? Um, I think that's a great one. BCG is a customer. We know them well. They're you know on our 100 best list. But I don't want to talk about that. I'll tell you why. Because we just leapt over something, yeah. um, which is businesses that treat people with respect in a fair way, in an equitable way, make more money. People that have diverse cultures, diversity of thought, make more money, perform better. Why doesn't everybody do it? And the people who don't skip over it, what transformation have they made? Or what? The transformation that they've made is, number one, they aren't afraid to say mm. our people are more important than our customers. Our employees. Our employees yeah. are more important than our customers. They aren't afraid to say it, which most CEOs are afraid to say. It. Mm. The fact is, it's true. And it's certainly in a great place to work in a high performing workplace. But they're afraid to say it. They're just afraid to say it, which they lack courage. And they need to say it, and their people know they like What's the it. downside of saying that? The downside of saying it is people think, oh, we're not customer-centric. Oh, we're not customer-focused. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, you know, we don't want the customer to think that our people are more important than them, mm-hmm. which their customers know their people are more important than them. Mm-hmm. Their customers know the customer gets great products and services from people who are having an outstanding time at this thing called work. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets it except executives and CEOs who think they have to keep repeating the business school mantra about shareholder value and customer centricity. Yeah. Okay. So there's the problem. So you flip that. Once you flip that, it changes the way you behave. You start developing leaders mm. as apprentices. This is what great organizations do. This is the best practice. You say you can keep hitting your sales targets. You can keep exceeding the marketing numbers. You can dominate in the market. If your people aren't having an outstanding experience, you're not going to be an executive here. Mm-hmm. That's it. Okay. So now, how often does that happen? Like, never. Rare. Okay. So, oh, okay. But- I can give you a few examples. I know some examples where it's actually happening, but this is the best practice. This is more important to me than pet insurance and flexible work schedules and telecommuting and Zoom technology and massages and pedicure Tuesdays and millennial Mondays and baby boomer Thursdays. Okay, this is the thing that makes a difference. Those other things are just not addressing the real issue, which either you believe in people first Mm -hmm. or you don't. And if you don't, it's not going to be a great place to work for all. It's going to be a great place to work for some and the same old some, by the way. Yeah. This is not a riskless strategy because there is a potential risk. And uh, so sorry, I put on my professor hat sometimes as I do at Presidio Graduate School and I teach (laughs) sustainable finance and multi-sector finance. Are there risks to that? And so some people would say there's risk to that because oh, the employees are first, I don't have to pick up that customer call. Or as I've talked to friends at large enterprises, including like Google and Wells Fargo, they say, oh, my millennial employees aren't going to come in 
because they want to sleep in. They don't want to have a meeting before 10. Okay. Well, Paul, so, I got to stop. So there's okay. some risk. Here's a, okay. You're citing so, Wells so, Fargo. Okay. Seriously? Okay. So you, you're like, like, oh, an employee. Oh, I'm first. So now I'm not going to. That's an idiot employee. They don't exist. Okay. The, they those do are, exist. Those are bad they, hires. They, there's very few. Right. So there's very, very this, few. How the, in this? The risk is not doing it. But there's what you there's what you know it's like uh, it's like parenting and there's what you say and there's what people hear and so it's what you do, do you, it's what you do but just like also, as a parent it's what you, you do. do it people hear it first so you could do it different ways you could do it first and then people mm-hmm. just interpret it you could say what you're going to do do it and then reinforce positive behavior but we all know there's human nature. And all of our best laid plans don't always come to fruition. So what are the behaviors, practices, systems that pursue the philosophy and strategy that you're describing that protect against the risks? Some of these people aren't bad hires. They're good hires, but they have a different frame Mm -hmm. of what balance is, especially in a post-2001, post-2008 world, because millennials grew up, you know, in their youth seeing terrorism on on 9-11 and then living through yet another financial crisis. So there's a different frame on this balance. And so how do you say that in the way that you want it heard and people acted upon? It's based on trust. So I got a thousand people doing work all around the world right now, Mm -hmm. all different time zones. I'm not worried about what they're doing. I trust them a hundred percent. I don't need to monitor what they're doing. I don't even think about it. You either trust people or you don't. And when you trust them, that's why there's no risk. If you don't trust them, now there's a risk. You can calculate some kind of risk or something like that. This isn't just me thinking this way in the way I run my company of a thousand people. Other great leaders feel the exact same way. If you have a bad hire, you have a bad hire. That's management, okay? And you deal with that in terms of management. You're a bad hire. You're here. Somehow you snuck in and see you later. And that's what you Mm. do. But that is very few people. I'm telling you, we do this all around the world. There are very few bad hires, and companies that, that have a habit okay, of... Okay, so uh, how does that happen? Because people are not, and Emily, feel free to chime in here. How do you ensure the greatest hires right. and avoiding bad hires? Well, first, I want to underscore the idea of putting your employees first. There are two concrete examples I think we can all relate to. One, the medical community. This is a community that lives and dies by patient-first philosophy. And how does that make us feel when we are going in to be operated on whereby doctors and medical professionals have some of the highest rates of alcoholism, the lowest numbers of sleep, the highest rates of burnout as almost any other industry in our nation. That is a problem we need to solve. Then we look at the airline industry. What is the difference between flying Southwest Airlines and flying basically any other airline? What's like the number one difference in your experience with the folks who are running that flight? They're heavy. They're alive. They're human beings. They're making jokes. They don't look like they are just sending you eye daggers to sit down and shut up and not asking for anything because being a flight attendant is not an easy job, but they are cracking jokes on the flight before you take off. That is the implementation of trust in your employees and your frontline folks and the implementation of an employee first strategy. And it absolutely trickles down. This is a way to flip trickle down economics for us for a moment here. It trickles down to the customer experience. So when you take care of the employee experience, it results in a happier, better, 
customer experience as well. Seeing those two things as at odds with each other is a very zero sum way of looking at that pie. And I think if we want medical professionals, pilots, people who have our lives in their hands, the people who build, I don't know, Boeing airplanes to be well rested, to be well paid, to have basic human needs taken care of, we need to value that employee experience first. I completely dodged your question, but I hope you'll forgive me because I had to share those couple of examples. And also the safest airlines in the world and the only one that's been profitable every quarter in its existence. 25 years. Yeah. Okay. So let's focus on what people who are here can do. People Mm. who are listening to this podcast can do as they share it inside their organization to gather coalitions to do. What can individuals do individually? And what do you need the help of others to do? So I really started my career advocating and helping individual everyday citizens build power because that is a thing we can grow, right? The grassroots nature of bottom-up power building and consensus building to help make their voices heard in Washington to help change the world. And that is the same philosophy that I bring to advocating for yourself at work. It starts with a three-step paradigm that I highly encourage us all to internalize. One is there is an inherent risk associated with acting like a boss, as I like to put it, right? Cultivating this identity that you have the ability to change your circumstances is not an easy thing to do, but it starts with acting differently. Leadership action means calling that meeting when you realize everyone in your office is miserable and sending those eye daggers at the boss every day as he walks in at 1030 in the morning with his dog and no one else can walk in at 1030 with their dog. So calling that conversation together, hosting that meeting, saying, hey, everybody, this is an individual who can do an this. Individual so, can do this. Okay. And then so that's a risk. That is an inherent risk. Okay. Step one, taking leadership action, which is inherently risky. Mm-hmm. Step two is gauging the reaction you get from others. Mm-hmm. Because we all hope that p- folks show up to that meeting. But we've all had the experience of calling that community forum, putting those chairs out and having no one fill them. There is a rejection that requires no action on anyone's part. A rejection is just maintaining the status quo. So you take that first risk, you call that conversation together, no one validates your move and your internal sense of leadership gets chipped away. So that third step of cultivating this boss identity, taking strategic action, gauging the response you get from others, whether positive or negative. And then the third step is internalizing what you're going to take away from that. Is it, I'm just not capable of building consensus. No one will ever listen to me. My voice isn't being heard here. Or is it, I need to do this differently next time. And when we can look at our strategies and tactics with this sort of design thinking approach, right? This iterative process of how am I going to do this better next time? It gives us the confidence to continue to act, to okay. take that round and again. And you need to choose the word boss because it also sounds like coalition leader or movement leader. Yeah, leader. Because boss has some implied hierarchical connotations. Well, I, I like the term bossed up, which is a hip hop term. Sure. The name of your book. From, yeah. I mean, bossed up is different than boss. We're not talking about management theory here for a second. We're talking about hip hop. Okay. And if you want to understand what it looks like to own your power, believe in your own come up story, be the agent of change in your own life story in the face of systemic injustice, look no further than all art forms that are derived from the African-American experience, including hip hop. So the term bossed up comes straight out of the African-American experience, which is, yeah, the cards are not dealt fairly, but I'm going to play my hand to the best of my ability. And I'm not going to allow the 
world of oppression that we're all operating in to slow my role and to keep me quiet. And so I use the term boss identity. The research on the term is the cultivating your leadership identity. Uh-huh. But however you got to get bossed up, it yeah. starts with taking, right. taking action. But words matter to the people who hear them and, oh, I'm glad and for the, the way question. that yeah. they're implemented. Absolutely. So, you know, figuring out the right vocabulary to solve the problem is part of the solution. Okay. So, uh, Michael, what can people do tangibly today, right after this panel, tomorrow, this week? What can people do? I would read Emily's book. <laughs> I I would double click bang. Okay. That's absolutely what, that's absolutely what it is. It's about that Mm self-responsibility. It's about abandoning the victim mindset and looking in the mirror and that's who's responsible. Mm -hmm. The playing field isn't level. You better run hills. That's Mm -hmm. what my father told me. You better run hills. It's not level. So I ran hills. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so that's it. And when you're treated disrespectfully, move on. Yeah. Okay, move on. It's like, yeah, I'm listening, but you're updating your LinkedIn profile. Okay, get get a, get a move on. So that's what I would say to anyone. And I believe in this. I believe in this completely. So if you're a leader or can influence leaders, yeah, I believe in surveying employees. I believe in finding a way for employees to communicate in an anonymous way about the experience that they're having at work. And once you do that, you're automatically holding leaders accountable because mm-hmm. the thing that wrecks a culture is doing a survey and leaders do nothing. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it. Oh, okay. It's just, <laughs> it craters. It goes the other way. And so that's a great accountability. So, you know, I, I would recommend that. And then, so it's getting your organization to really create a, a way of listening. And then for leaders, it's realizing that your job is not about you being the leader that you always wanted to be. It's about being the leader that your people need you to be. Mm-hmm. So you got to want to change every day. That's how you create a great place to work for all. That's what a for all leader is. Leaders who do that, we have the data on it, can lead millennials, baby boomers, people of any age, tenure, gender. They erase all of that because they treat people as humans. They recognize they might be part of a group based on some definition of a group, but they treat people as people on a one-on-one basis. And they can get that person to do almost anything. And here's the thing that those people say in the survey. I'm here because of my boss. Mm. I'm here because of my manager. In crazy situations, Mm -hmm. you will see people say, I can't believe you're here. And they will say, I'm here because of my boss. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Because of what this boss creates for me. I hope you enjoyed that sample of the dialogue we had at the Commonwealth Club of California just a few weeks ago with my fellow panelists, Michael C. Bush from A Great Place to Work and Paul Herman from Hip Investor Impact Ratings and Portfolios. I'm curious to hear from you. What do you think about why great places to work are better for all of us? What does a great place to work really look like for you? I'd be curious to hear what matters most to you when considering what's going to be a great place to work and what's not. Let me know what you think by weighing in on today's corresponding blog post, bossedup.org slash episode 142, or by hitting me up on social media at boss.org and at Emily Aries. And once again, if you would like to have more conversations like this at your place of work or with your industry association or your university, your campus, your organization, your nonprofit group, your advocacy organization, let me know if I can join you. I am waiting for your invitation to bring me in as a speaker or panelist in an upcoming event near you. Don't hesitate to reach out at emilyaries.com and check out today's show notes where you can learn more about what that looks like. 
And now I got to go finish our final preparations for this weekend's Boston Bootcamp in Chicago, which I am so excited about. So if you are ready to navigate career transition like a boss, level up in your career and life, and want a community of courage and guidance helping you clarify those next steps each and every step of the way, there's still time to register and join us at bossedup.org slash bootcamp. And I hope to see you there. And in the meantime, as we look at podcasts we're producing for the next few weeks throughout the course of the summer, I want to hear from you, boss. What career conundrums are you facing right now that we can unpack on an upcoming podcast? Or what boss moves do you have to share? Because we always love to shine a spotlight on the real women in our community who are bossing up in their own way, in their own lives, in their own career, on their own terms. You can always call those questions and boss moves in on the Boss Up Podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS or 2677, which is included in the show notes in every single episode. So check that out. Give our hotline a ring or send me a voice memo if you're an international listener and can't call into that hotline for any reason. And you just might hear your question or boss move come up on an episode in the next coming weeks. Thanks as always for listening. Let's keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.